people say, oh man, if I could just see a miracle, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. Miracles do not bring salvation. Maybe we need to hear the message ourselves and be saved. Well, good morning. It is a beautiful, beautiful morning out there, and we have enjoyed some rain this week, and that has been a real blessing, and I am glad that you are here today. Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament, but we are in the Gospel of Mark, which is the second book in the New Testament. And we are in chapter 6, and following up on what we looked at last week with um, Jesus and his visit to the town that he grew up in, the town of Nazareth. Let me read the passage for you here, beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and continuing through chapter 13. And he called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that you have cared so much about us and wanted us to know, wanted the world to know who you are and what you have done, that you have breathed into this Word the very Word that we need to hear. It is your Word. It's not the Word of men. It's not something that's been made up from the imaginations of people but it is the true historical account of Jesus walking on this earth, proclaiming the gospel, doing the works that he did in authentication of his message. It is your God-breathed word to us. And so, Lord, help us to receive it that way and to realize that this is not just for long, long ago and far, far away, but this is for us here today, on this 25th of June, 2023. And Lord, it applies to our lives as we live them out each day. So Father, thank you for this word and help us to understand it. I pray that you would enable me to proclaim it as it should be and that we would have open hearts and minds that your spirit would work in us and bring about the change in our lives that will glorify him. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just so that we remember where we are in the course of our year, six months from now it will be Christmas Day. Just, 
want to let you know, okay? Uh, time, time marches on, and it marches quickly, and don't be left behind, okay? This event that we look at here today really is the last major evangelistic event that Jesus uh, puts forward. It's called the Great Galilean Ministry. And as we looked last time, his visit to Nazareth was the last visit that he made to that city of his growing up years. Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem, but because of the danger of King Herod and later the danger of Archelaus, God moved Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus down into Egypt for about a year, then brought them back up into the promised land. But Joseph, the foster father, the one who was responsible for bringing Jesus up in a, a human family, decided that it was still too dangerous in Jerusalem, even though Herod was dead, because his son Archelaus was the king there. And so they went on north back into Nazareth, which was the hometown of both Mary and Joseph. And it was there that they chose to raise uh, not only Jesus, but then we saw last week that there were four brothers and at least two sisters, though none of the sisters were named. It uses the plural, so there's got to be at least two to have more than one, right? So maybe there were three sisters or four sisters, I don't know. But four brothers, two sisters, and Jesus, of course, being the oldest, uh, born of the virgin. Uh, but Mary and Joseph had uh, a, a normal married life after that, and children were born from that. After they rejected him for the second time there in Nazareth, Jesus doesn't go back home anymore. And I wish we could say with uh, resounding success that the people of Nazareth considered who Jesus was and claimed to be and demonstrated himself to be and that they all repented and turned to the Lord. But I don't think we can say that. His brothers did later on. In fact, James and Jude became uh, ones through whom the Lord inspired his word. And we have the book of James and the book of Jude. They became believers, and, and hopefully the sisters did too. But Jesus is making a transition here in his ministry, and this is the last part of the great Galilean ministry. Later on, he's going to be moving down, he's going to be moving into Judea, he's going to be spending time in Perea, which was over on the east side of the Jordan River. Um, he's moving moving steadily toward that appointment in Jerusalem with a cross. And that's all part of God's plan and purpose. This is not something that's happening by accident. God has orchestrated all of this and has revealed much of the detail in the Old Testament. And Jesus is fulfilling the will of his Father. Before, though, he does make that move to the south, there's one last effort in Galilee. And this time, Jesus is not necessarily taking the lead personally himself, but he chooses his 12 disciples. Now, these men had been chosen and called by Jesus before. We looked at that earlier. But now he's giving them a new assignment. 
He's sending them out. This is kind of like an apprenticeship. You know, they've, they've been with Jesus all this time. They've been learning. They've been growing. They've been seeing what Jesus is doing. They've been hearing the message. And now Jesus pairs them up and He sends them out into this area of Galilee, which was still fairly friendly toward Jesus and His message. Further south in Jerusalem and Judea, there was less of a friendly acceptance and attitude. And we'll see that growing as we continue working our way through the Gospel of Mark. But right now, things are still basically friendly and and that's good because these disciples are going to eventually not be in friendly territory and they're going to have to take a a big hard stand in being faithful in their testimony but that's still a little way down the road but jesus is preparing them for that day let me pause here and just offer a suggestion that Jesus knows our futures as well. And we can be confident that Jesus is preparing us for whatever the future may hold. We need to be walking closely with Him. We need to be listening to what He has to say. But Jesus is preparing us for the future. Why? Because He loves us because he knows our weaknesses, because he knows that life happens at lightning speed and we're not always prepared for it at that moment. So Jesus takes the initiative and he prepares us for that future. We can take comfort in that, beloved. Things are working out according to God's plan and purpose. And and while we may not always see it, while we may find ourselves in the midst of the mess and think has God forgotten me has has he abandoned me has he turned his back on me and we see that sometimes don't we in the pages of scripture particularly in the Psalms the psalmist will say oh Lord how long have you forgotten is your arm too short we experience that don't we and God's never threatened by those expressions They're the expressions of a heart that really desires to know Him deeply and to serve Him well. And and sometimes we do become perplexed at how life is unfolding. But beloved, the solid bedrock foundation is this. God is in control. He's preparing us for that future, whatever it might turn out to be. We don't know. He does. Which is why He's preparing us and we can trust Him We can count on Him. We can rely on Him to do in us what's best. Because God has an eternal perspective on life, not merely the immediate moment. He's looking at eternity and preparing us for that. Well, Jesus is preparing these guys and he sends them out two by two and he gives them some instructions. What are the instructions that he gives them? Well, first of all, they're to proclaim the gospel. That gospel was announced for us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus went out and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
the long-promised, long-awaited, glorious kingdom of God is right here at the threshold, and we need to repent. We need to be ready for that kingdom to burst on the scene. You say, well, now, Pastor, if Jesus preached that and it's 2,000 years ago, that's a big threshold, isn't it? I mean, usually the threshold is that little strip of wood or whatever that, that you step over rather easily when you come from the outside to the inside of a home. Well, yeah, that's true, but we're looking at eternity and comparing these last 2,000 years to eternity, which is like that, you know? I mean, it's, it's a drop in the bucket, hardly. Jesus presented the message that this world needs to hear, and it is a message of repentance. We're going in the wrong way, beloved. I mean, you've heard that, I'm sure, uh, in conversation, people that you talk to. Sometimes even we hear it on the news that our, our nation seems to be going in the wrong direction. Well, that's true, but that's nothing new. You and I, have been going in the wrong direction. Every individual in the world is going in the wrong direction, and what needs to happen is repentance. Repentance captures the idea of a change of mind which results in the change of direction. What do we need to change our mind about? Well, we need to change our mind about Jesus. He's not just a story uh, he's not just a, a great teacher who taught a, a sort of a unique ethic of life. He is God who has taken on human flesh and has come into this world to teach us about the Father, to reveal to us who we really are. Sinners, condemned, ready for eternal destruction. We don't like to hear that. We like to think we're pretty good people. We're nice folks. I mean, we all got up this morning, we got showered up and dressed up, and, you know, we look good, we smell good, we smile, we say nice things to each other. We're good people. We're nice people, right? No. Because down deep in our hearts, apart from Christ, there is a terrible, terrible person who lives there a person who is in rebellion against God, a person who doesn't want God, a person who wants to do their own thing and live their own life and do their own uh, joys and privileges and, and, and make themselves comfortable to do whatever is right in their own eyes. And that is contrary to what God has designed us for. We are designed by God to have a relationship with Him to worship Him, to love Him, to honor Him, to serve Him, which is not burdensome, but is a fulfillment of the purpose for which we were created. And so we need to do some repenting. We need to realize that we're not the center of the universe. The world doesn't revolve around me. I heard a message earlier this week that was actually preached back in the 90s and it was on the religion of meism. <laughs> We've all been infected by it, haven't we? Meism. 
me, 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 what I want, what I think is best, what I think is good, what I am pleased with, that's me, that's what I want. Part of what we need to repent from is that me-ism, because this world is not about us. It's about God. Scripture says that He brought this world, this whole universe, into existence, not because He needed something, but simply as a demonstration of His glory and power and majesty. A demonstration of who He is. He has given us life. Are you keeping yourself alive? Nope. Doesn't matter how much you exercise. Doesn't matter how well you eat. You're going to die eventually anyway. You cannot maintain your own life forever. Life is a gift. Your next breath, your next heartbeat is a gift from Almighty God. And we need to repent of this foolish idea that we are in charge of our own lives. That we are the source of our own lives. We are not. And so Jesus sends His disciples out to proclaim this message of the Gospel, the good news that God has dealt with our sin, has made a way for us to be acceptable in His sight, and if we turn to Him, when we turn to Him, He forgives and He adopts us as His special, chosen, redeemed, saved child. He wanted to teach the disciples about faith and obedience too. Notice what he says here in his instructions. He says, whatever, uh, let me back up here, verse 8. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, in other words, don't take your luggage with you. No bread, no money, no copper in your money belt. Wear sandals, but don't put on two tunics. You know, that was another way of sort of packing for the journey. <laughs> Just, you know, wear two things in case. No, you go out. Don't worry about the material things of life. Worry about the message. Worry about the message. Worry about the task that you have been given of proclaiming the truth. He says, whatever place you enter a house, stay there. And don't depart from that place. You know, there were a lot of itinerant philosophers in those days. And they would go into a town and they would, you know, try to promote their own philosophy of living. We have that today. They're called life coaches. They're, they've just got different names. But they're philosophers who, you know, maybe they've had an experience or maybe they've learned something or what, but they want to share it with everybody else. And so in those days, these folks would travel around and they would, since there weren't any Holiday Inns or American, uh, you know, Ameriprise, whatever things that they, they just go into somebody's house usually it was somebody that was buying into their system and they'd stay there but as they proclaimed their message maybe somebody a little more important a little more wealthy would buy into the system so all of a sudden now you know they're going to move into the better place and so these itinerant teachers would work that along and they'd they'd get into the best place that they could because a part of their philosophy was, you know, hey, you, you pay me and I'll make sure that you get the best secrets, the best treatment, the best whatever. Things haven't changed, have they? I mean, we still see that in the world today. 
only it's done on TV and YouTube and all kinds of podcasts and things. And the charlatans are out there trying to influence you. And of course, you need to help support them. And beloved, that's why I just I encourage you make the local church your primary means of giving and support. You know what's happening here. You know the ministry that God is doing here. You know that you know we're making wise decisions with those ministry things. And just don't listen to all of the stuff that's out there in the world. Don't, don't listen to it. And Jesus wants his disciples to be different. He doesn't want them to follow the path of these itinerant philosophers. He says, you go to a home, you stay put. Preach the message there. Be content. Live with whatever they might be able to provide to you, but be content. And, and when you leave the town, give it a blessing. Give your host a blessing. And we don't always understand that. There really is a, a reality to asking God to bless someone, to bless this home, this person, and, and to do so because they have had a particular part in ministry. That, that's a reality. That's a real thing. It's not just a nice little sounding word. And so they were to stay put. They were to preach repentance. They were to, to be a blessing. But they were also to do one other thing. Jesus says, if they won't listen to you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a te testimony against them. And then he says something that's really shocking, really surprising. He says, assuredly, I say to you, in other words, this is absolutely true. Take this to the bank, all right? I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You say, my goodness, Sodom and Gomorrah were kind of the, the poster child for wickedness in the Old Testament, weren't they? I mean, that was sort of the, the, the big picture of what wickedness was all about. And you mean rejecting this message of repentance is more serious than what Sodom and Gomorrah were doing? And the answer is yes. Because what they were doing, they were doing in ignorance. God did not send them a prophet. God did not send them an inscripturated word from himself. Lot, who was living among them, was in many ways not much better than them, although in his own soul he was vexed. We discover that in the book of Hebrews. He was vexed with their behavior. It, it didn't set well with him. But he apparently was not an evangelistic messenger to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plains surrounding them. So what Sodom and Gomorrah were doing was in their own ignorance, and yet they were responsible before God. And their behavior got to such a level that God says, that's it, no more patience with them now. It's just judgment. But here, Jesus himself had been going throughout the area of Galilee, preaching and teaching, doing miracles. Now he sends his representatives there to do the same to preach the message of repentance he empowers them to do some miraculous signs 
as an authentication that their message is true. And, and these folks who turn them away have sinned against a far greater light. Beloved, you know, when you sit and listen to a message being preached, you sit and you read the Word of God, God holds you accountable for that. It's not like you don't know. It's not like you haven't heard. There is a higher accountability. And when there is a higher accountability, there is a higher price to be paid for rejecting the truth. A higher price. And it may not come in this life, but it will come on the day of judgment. God doesn't forget, you know, somebody, <laughs> picture it, here this guy shows up in front of God's throne and it's time for judgment and God says, oh, I can't remember what this guy did. No, no, God knows. And, and, and it doesn't matter whether it was 50 years ago or 20 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, God remembers. And it doesn't matter in our lifetime whether it was when we were 4 or 5 or 40 or 50 or 80 or 90. God knows what our response is to Him and to His Word and to the light that He gives us. And He holds us accountable for our response to that truth. And so God says, or Jesus says, God, to his disciples, you shake the dust off their feet, if they off your feet. If they reject you, you shake the dust off your feet. That's going to be a, a wake-up call. That's, that's a last sign that you are innocent of their response. You've told them the truth, and it's on themselves now. And that's like, wake up. Because this is serious business. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They did their job. They didn't take anything extra. They depended on God. They proclaimed the message. And boy, I wish I could say that everybody repented. <laughs> I wish I could say that. Some did, I'm sure. A few. But you kind of get the idea that most of them didn't. They, they saw the miracles. They heard the words. They saw the, the urgency with which these apostles went out there and preached the message. But they were like those four soils that Jesus described in the Gospels that we looked at earlier. Some of them were hard-packed. You know, their hearts were hard and so the gospel message just kind of bounced right off and it made no impact whatsoever. And some, oh man, they, they, you know, they were used to hearing these itinerant philosophers. Oh, this guy sounds good, so we'll follow him today. And, oh, this guy sounds good, so we'll follow him next. It's kind of like diets, you know. Diets come in all shapes and sizes and different varieties. And, so we're going to follow this diet today. And oh, no, that's passe. Now we're going to do this diet. Oh, no, that's not it either. Now we're going to do that. And so maybe they're like, oh, here's this message about repenting because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wonderful. Let's follow that. Let's do that. Oh, yes, we're going to do it. And, and they looked like, you know, they were growing, but they were on shallow soil. They had no root. 
And as soon as, well, as soon as it looked like it might be a little costly to them, like they might not be able to do what they wanted to do, they just abandoned it. They, they didn't follow it anymore. Or maybe they were like that group that got sown in the weedy patch. You know, weeds grow on concrete, and it doesn't take much for a weed to grow. So there's a patch of weeds, and they're just flourishing, and they choke out. They choke out the good seed. And there's nothing there. There's no fruit. I think that was probably characteristic of a lot of the people there in Galilee. They, they just didn't get it. They didn't hear. They didn't respond. They weren't interested. They were interested in so many other things. They were interested in the passing fad or their hearts were just rock hard and they didn't want God at all. But some believed, I'm sure, because there is that good soil. I don't know how many there might have been. But you know, after the resurrection, the gospel spread. It spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And some of those folks that probably heard Jesus there during that preaching tour in the area of Galilee and didn't respond right away, maybe responded later. You know, it's interesting, it says after the resurrection that many of the priests believed. They didn't believe before the resurrection. They didn't believe when Jesus was right there among them preaching and teaching. They refused to believe. In fact, they even screamed for His death. But later, later, you know, that gives me hope. I'll bet all of you have somebody in your family, somebody, maybe a childhood acquaintance, friend that you've had all your lives, and they don't know Christ. And you've talked to them, you've shared the faith with them, you've pleaded with them, you've done all kinds of things to try and encourage them and persuade them, and so far, it hasn't happened. Don't give up. It may be after your lifetime that that person will turn to the Lord and be saved? I don't know. I know it happens. I know God works that way at times. And I don't, I don't know why some people you know, need to hear the message for 30 years before they respond. Some people hear it two or three times and boy, right away their, their hearts are open and tender and, and they respond quickly. I don't know why the difference is but I know that God continues to work in a person's heart as long as there's life and breath. You know, that's, that's encouraging to us. So on this particular occasion, how many could they chalk up on the, the report sheet when they got back to Jesus? I don't know. Maybe some. Maybe they counted some that really weren't. Maybe they didn't count some who really were. I don't know. But that ministry came to an end. And Jesus eventually moves on. I think there's something instructive there for us. You know, God does speak to us in various seasons of life. And if we reject that, His Spirit moves on. And that sense of conviction will die away and, and we won't be bothered by that anymore. And maybe we'll think, oh, good, man, I don't have to put up with that anymore. Well, that's not really a good place to be <laughs> because it means you're turning further and further from the Lord. That should not happen.
So there's one thing I want us to think about here, and that's Judas, the story of Judas. You remember Judas, don't you? Judas was chosen by the Lord after a night of prayer. He was chosen as one of the 12 disciples, the 12 who would eventually become apostles, being sent out with a message. Judas was in on this. Did you ever think about that? When it says that Jesus called the twelve to him, that, that included Judas. Judas, the twelve, really was that inner circle that was closest to Jesus. They were well identified. They were publicly known because people would come to them. You know, later on uh, in in the gospel, we're going to have uh, these Greeks coming to Philip and Andrew, wanting to see Jesus. And so these 12 were, were known, they were well identified as the followers of Jesus. I think I mentioned before that Jesus, in, in structuring his public ministry, did it like the rabbis would do in those days. A rabbi would gather around himself 12 men, 12 men whom he wanted. You couldn't just volunteer for the job. You had to be chosen by the rabbi. And you would spend several years with the rabbi learning everything that you possibly could so that then you could go out and share what you had learned from the rabbi with others. Jesus is using that pattern. And there's Judas. And we all know that Judas was the betrayer, right? In fact, the Gospels tell us every, almost every single time that they mention him, certainly whenever he's included in a list, that Judas, parenthesis, the one who betrayed him, and parenthesis, you know, that, that, that just constantly comes through. Here's the story of Judas. He was attracted to Jesus for wrong reasons. Maybe when he heard the kingdom of heaven is at hand, He's thinking, oh, great, we're going to get rid of these Romans. Well, I certainly want to be a part of this new kingdom and get whatever I can out of it because, man, if I get close to Jesus, you know, I can be one of those big administrators and I can be running the show here a little bit, have my own kingdom within the kingdom. Maybe that was some of Judas's motivation. Maybe it was just curiosity because Jesus didn't call the 12 disciples right away he had already performed some miracles. He had already done some amazing things. And maybe Judas thought, wow, you know, this is kind of cool. Maybe I want to be associated with that and, and be able to, to do those kinds of things and perform miracles. That'd be cool. Maybe Judas decided to stick in there because he had the opportunity to be the group's treasurer. And he was the guy that carried the money bag. And he could slip his hand in the purse every once in a while and go get a cheeseburger or something. I don't know. But, you know, he, he, he could pilfer the, the money. He was making a little profit for himself. I don't understand all of Judas's motives, and maybe some of all of that was involved. But Judas never put his trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And yet, Judas did the work of a disciple. Judas was paired up with somebody. I don't know who he was paired up with. We don't have the pairs, you know. Maybe it was Peter. 
Maybe it was Thaddeus. Maybe, I don't know who it might have been. But off they went. And Judas went out and he proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached the message. He learned his lesson and he recited his verses. And, and, and he did it. Whether he performed miracles himself or not, I kind of doubt he probably was there when, when his fellow disciple was there and they performed miracles. And by the way, even if he did, it's not based on the power of the person. It was a gift that God gave so that his message might be authenticated through his messengers to the ones that they were going to speak to. It was God doing the work. It wasn't vested power in those 12 men. All right? They were simply the vehicles through which God did the work. But even that never changed Judas's heart. There's an important lesson there. Miracles do not bring salvation. People say, oh man, if I could just see a miracle, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16 to the, the, in, in that exchange there with um, the rich man and Lazarus. He was telling the story about the death of those two. And, you know, the rich man died and was buried and Lazarus died and he was carried by the angels to Abram's bosom, to paradise. And there was the rich man. He was in agony and flames. He was in torment and he cried out to Abraham and he said, Oh, Abraham, have, have mercy. You know, let Lazarus dip his finger in water and put a drop on my tongue. Now that's misery, isn't it? If, if a drop of water brings relief, the misery must be really terrible because a drop of water is not very much, you know? Abram says, No, there's a great gulf fixed between us. You can't come to us. We can't go to you. The rich man pleads. He says, oh, send Lazarus back to my brothers so that they don't come to this place. Here was this dead guy with brothers at home and he, he had blown God off all of his life and now he didn't want them to come. He didn't want them to be there. You know, I get amused sometimes at folks who say oh yeah I'm going to hell I don't care I know I'm gonna be down there with all my friends uh-uh if your friends precede you they do not want you to come they do not want you there because it is a place of misery and agony and then Abram says something interesting he says no we're not gonna send Lazarus back they've got Moses and the prophets let them read let them hear them They've got the Old Testament. They've got the Word of God. Let them focus on the Word of God because it is the Word of God that transforms a life. And the guy says, oh, no, no, no. They won't do that, but if somebody goes from the dead, they'll believe. And then Abram says this. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. If they don't believe the Word of God, no miracle in the world will bring them to salvation. Why? Because they're hardening their hearts to the truth. Miracles do not produce faith. Miracles can support 
faith, strengthen faith. A miracle can condemn by demonstrating the reality of the message, but it doesn't produce faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's why, beloved, when you're wanting to share your faith with someone, talk to them, but bring them to the Word eventually. Get them to interact with the Word of God because it is the Word of God that He uses through the Spirit of God, taking that Word, bringing conviction, and transforming a life. That's so important. That never happened in Judas's case. And though Judas looked like a disciple on the outside, he was a devil on the inside. He never trusted Christ. Beloved, proximity, nearness to the things of God doesn't mean that you're a Christian. You can learn all the lingo. You can sit in a pew. You can be around when we have fellowship meals and fun times together. You can go on mission trips. You can give money for Bibles. You can do all kinds of things. But if there has been no repentance in the heart, there is no salvation in the life. That's the story of Judas. What a tragedy. So how about some lessons for us today? Well, Jesus is calling us to serve just like those 12 apostles that he called and sent out. I don't know what your calling is. Oh, I can guess for some of you. Maybe, maybe he's called you to interact with people in a retail business. And so you're out there doing that. And maybe he's called you to, to be the very best um, manufacturer that you can possibly be and you work on the assembly line and you you know it, it the work maybe is not difficult but you're there and you're faithful and you're doing it and you're interacting with people around you that's the work <laughs> it's the people that you're ministering to that's the work he's called you to do whatever you happen to be doing in life is the platform that God has given you upon which you are to do the amazing work of representing Jesus Christ, wherever you happen to be. You've been called to that ministry. Are we being faithful to it? What's the message that we take? It's not just that you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God does love you. And for those who turn to Him, God does have a wonderful plan the plan for those who reject him is not so wonderful. You know? Um, what is the message? Well, the message is the same message. It's repent. You're not right with God. You've got to be right with God. And, and you can't do it on your terms. You've got to come to God on his terms. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You can't earn your way to heaven. You come to God on God's terms. That's the message that we need to proclaim. And when we do that, and when we proclaim that word, and lives are changed, they are changed now for the better, and in eternity for the very best. That's the message that we proclaim. This is not your best life now, contrary to Joel Olstein. 
This is not your best life now. The best life is eternal life. What you do with this life now in knowing God and serving Him and worshiping Him is important. But don't get confused that God somehow just wants to fix us up a little bit so we can enjoy this life. That's not the message. The message is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's almost near. And if you aren't ready for that kingdom, when it comes on the scene, you will be shut out. Maybe we need to hear the message ourselves and be saved. I would be heartbroken to think that there are Judases among us, those who have been so close to the truth, and yet it has never penetrated their own hearts. And you know, you know, Judas knew. Judas knew. And that's why he kept on going on the course that he did, because he had determined that he was not going to bow the knee to Christ. You know, please, beloved, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ could return at any moment, and and we don't want to be found wanting. We don't want to be found on the outside. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. It teaches us just so much. Everything that we need for life and godliness. It's all here. And Father, I pray that Your Word will sink deeply into our hearts and that Your Spirit will take that Word and drill it down within us and transform us. Father, I pray that no one here this day is still outside the kingdom. Lord, if they are, I pray that this very day they will repent and turn to You and realize that this world is not about them It's about You. And that we all, Father, will grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That we will know Him more deeply, love Him more fully, serve Him more faithfully, and be ready when He calls us into His presence. Whether through death or through the rapture, whatever it might be, Father, but we would be ready because we are citizens of that kingdom. It's not here yet, but we're right on the threshold. Lord, help us please to be ready to step into your presence at any moment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.